When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Colorado has a story to tell. From Glenn Miller to Diane Reeves, from the astronauts to the Lumineers, the Colorado Music Experience collects and preserves the legacy of Colorado's rich music history, serving as a resource for audio, visual, informational, and archival materials. Your host is G. Brown. Our guest is Bill Stevenson of the legendary punk band Descendants and All based in Fort Collins. He's a badass drummer, a charismatic songwriter, and a wizard at the craft of record making as the founder of the Blasting Room Recording Studio. He's also a medical miracle, and for three decades, a treasure of the Colorado music community. Welcome, Bill. Well, thank you for having me. Were the drums your first instrument? The pots and pans and spatulas and wooden spoons were my first instrument when I was like six. When my parents had gotten done with dinner and were in the living room, maybe watching television or having a drink or something, all the pots and pans were on the low level and I was short. I couldn't reach any of the high levels. But I could pull that drawer open underneath the stove and I'd set them all up and play drums. That was my drum set. When I was 14, I got a snare drum. People found me tapping on the books in high school. I could hear the high school band practicing. Sometimes the marching bands are using these those sorts of almost military marching things. And I would always be on my folders and books or with the pencil or with my hands. And somebody was like, you should get a drum. So then, yeah, I got the snare drum. And then it was not long after that, I got the drum set. It was maybe... I don't know, six months in between. We weren't really of great financial means, so I think my dad got the little snare drum before he ponied up for a whole drum set. But a few months later, he bought me a used drum set. Maybe it cost $200, I don't know. And then shortly thereafter, we started The Descendants. I don't think I had had my drum set for three months, maybe four. And then we started the band. So yeah, we sort of learned how to play our instruments together. Frank and I were 15. Tony was quite a bit older, but he definitely didn't seem older. He seemed like one of us. This was happening right as the first wave of Los Angeles punk rock was flourishing, was burgeoning. I grew up in this Los Angeles area, Hermosa Beach, California, to be exact. And so it was, wow, I got this drum set. Plus, some of my older friends, they're taking me to these Shows where you pay five bucks and you get to see X and the Go-Go's and Fear and the Weirdos and the Screamers and the Blasters and the Flesh Eaters and the Germs. And it was like, wow, whoa. It changed my life. I was kind of a miserable person with sort of a chip on my shoulder before I found music and specifically before I found punk rock. It saved me from being quite miserable. When I look back on it, I actually get very emotional because I realized where I was before I found that stuff and how miserable I was and then how I am now. And there's no way to even comprehend how grateful I am. The other punk scenes that were going on concurrently over in Britain, New York, whatever, was that informing things or was something already in the water for you in Los Angeles area? As an ignorant 15-year-old, my awareness wasn't broad enough to really know about all the great bands that were happening in New York and England. Okay, we knew about the Sex Pistols, and we knew about the Ramones. And I remember I knew that one television song, Marquee Moon. I knew about it, but I didn't know much about it. Oddly, neither the Ramones nor the Pistols were a direct influence on us, but I think some of the bands that were an influence on us 
they had been influenced by the Ramones and Pistols, but they had been just as greatly influenced by something like the Kinks, the Rolling Stones, or Black Sabbath, or the Beatles in a different sort of sense. The bands that come to mind that really influenced my original playing and also my approach to songwriting, if I had to narrow it down to three, it would be a band called The Last from Hermosa Beach. So this is a pre-punk band. They were called Power Pop because there wasn't quite punk rock yet, really. They were like the Beatles on coffee or something like that. And then Black Flag. Okay, I later joined Black Flag, but I don't mean that. I mean when I was a little kid as a fan of Black Flag. And I also had that direct connection with Black Flag because Keith, the singer, Keith and I worked in the fishing tackle store together there in Hermosa Beach. His dad owned the fishing tackle store. The South Bay punk scene, I think, was born in that tackle store when I was about 13, 14. And then the third band would be a band called the Alley Cats. They were another L.A. punk band. I think if you try to find them, there's a few different bands called the Alley Cats, but this is the one that's a trio that was in the first wave of L.A. punk rock. Yeah. And those were the three bands that really influenced us the most. But then just right behind them was X, The Germs, Fear, The Adolescents, The Weirdos, even The Go-Go's. The Go-Go's used to be a punk band. They were great. By the time their album came out, they had groomed themselves for pop success, but they used to be a punk band. They used to love going to Go-Go shows, yeah. Not a pejorative term. If you're in high school with your friends forming descendants, there had to be melody involved at that juncture. You played surf beats early on. You were having some fun with it. The idea of being a faster and louder punk band seemed to evolve rather than being your initial mission. We never thought of ourselves as a punk band or as a not punk band. For lack of a better word, we would just say we're a rock and roll band, not to be confused with a rock band. Because at the time, your Zeppelins and your Aerosmiths and your Ted Nugents, those are rock bands. Somebody came along and they interviewed us in like 1980. And in their article reviewing our record, they referred to us as Chainsaw Pop. And I thought, I, I think I like that because no one's ever been called that before. We're like if the Beatles drank way too much coffee. <laughs> Beatles with a bad chip on their shoulder or something and with dirtier guitars. The band The Minutemen, their bass player, Mike Watt, he's the person that released our first two Descendants albums on his little label, New Alliance Records. He used to call us Frustrato Rock. And I thought <laughs> between Chainsaw Pop and Frustrato Rock, I feel like those are better terms because I certainly don't like the term pop punk because What's become of pop punk is it's embarrassing. What they call pop punk, I call mall punk. When people say that we coined that sound, I don't see that at all. Don't you feel like definitions are for record labels, for managers, for promoters, for magazine writers? They're not for musicians. Musicians just play how they feel in the garage. You get in there with your guys and you get sweaty and drink some coffee and, hey, that sounds good, that sounds good. You're definitely not going, well, I want to play something pop punk or I want to play something indie. You don't think like that. <laughs> Let's play something metal. Who thinks like that? Nobody that plays music thinks like that, or at least nobody I know. your style early on as caffeinated. Descendant songs became short and fast in a hurry, but not so much maybe in a response to the punk scene, but apparently because you guys were hopped up on coffee. How do you categorize your love affair with the bee? Well, there was a point when the Fatty P came out with I Like Food and Wiener Schnitzel and those songs and just some of that vibe, I Want to Be a Bear, that whole thing. Frank and I were commercial fishing at night, and there was kind of a fifth member of the band, Pat McQuistian. He was a pernicious influence on us, but in a good way and a bad way. Frank <laughs> and Pat would take amphetamine. We'd commercial fish all night. Then we'd go to high school. Then we'd go to band practice and do it again. So there wasn't sleep. <laughs> and yeah, Pat would always say, thanks to modern chemistry, sleep is now optional. He literally had a 
jar of amphetamine. And so they were doing those, but my father successfully taught me to be afraid of drugs. So I've never tried drugs and I didn't try those, but I would make these crazy coffees growing up in Hermosa Beach at age 14. I didn't know there was such a thing called espresso. I had never seen it or heard of it. There were no Starbucks. You couldn't get an espresso. I later found out that you could have got one if you went into like a nice, proper, legitimate, old school Italian restaurant. You could have gotten one, which I later started doing. But when I was 14, 15, I didn't know there was espresso. So I thought for many years that I invented espresso. So (laughs) what I would do is I'd get my coffee cup and I'd fill the coffee cup about two thirds of the way up with instant coffee grounds, a full measuring cup of coffee grounds. And then I would put hot water in it, and then I would put like a ton of sugar in it. I mean, way too much, like diabetes amount, instant diabetes plus triple bypass, and then enough cream to make it where you could just choke it down. (laughs) I mean, it was disgusting, and you just, but then I could stay up all night and fish with those guys, because that was how we were getting our money. You know, that was our little business we had on my little boat, Orca, little 16-foot boat. And so... I called that the bonus cup because, well, it's a coffee, but it's like a bonus cup of coffee, more. I just thought I was the coolest guy ever because I didn't have to take drugs. But, of course, I know now that I should have just probably taken the amphetamine. It would have been less disastrous on me and all that and the gastrointestinal stuff. You can imagine drinking that coffee like that with all the sugar in it. But, yeah, so that that's how it was. Welcome to Doreenus Mitchell. May I take your order, please? Yeah. I want... You want Bill Sperm with that? I get animated about those teenage years, though. If you ask me what I did last month, I mean, I don't know. But but back then, it was discovery. Every day was discovery. Everyone's like that. Those teenage years, even into your early 20s, your brain hasn't even developed all the way, and you got your hormones and your first love experiences and all that. That time is branded in the front of your brain somehow as being more interesting than all other times in your life. I think for a lot of people, this is the case. Descendants made some waves in the scene, took what turned out to be a hiatus when Milo Ackerman went to school to pursue a doctoral degree in biochemistry. Milo was already a noticeable singer, both musically and presence-wise. That kind of intellectual rigor or intellectual horsepower didn't seem to exist in many other groups of any ilk. You were evolving into an astute businessman. The idea of having a good brain to be intellectually curious To some outsiders, that's almost being punk within being punk, counterintuitive. Did your peers see it that way at all? Interestingly, the first wave of punk rock was more artists and thinkers, people with a different take on things. But the second wave of punk rock brought a lot of jockey types, boneheady types. They showed up for the slam pit or because somebody told them that the band plays really fast and they could do a bunch of meth and slam around on people. The first wave was more, not really hippies, but just free thinkers, artists, and intellectuals. But it's just that that second wave of punk rock eclipsed that first wave. And when you think of punk rock, you think of some bald-headed tattoo guy slamming. What about the Gang of Four? It's completely intellectual. I could name a million other bands. Yeah. Black Flag, seminal hardcore punk band. You sat in and ended up staying for a while? Their drummer Robo got deported to Columbia, as would happen frequently with him. We all warned him, Robo, you need to get your visa stuff in order. Well, it happened in the middle of a tour. They were coming back from England. All right, first of all, we all grew up in a two-mile radius, all of us, except Robo's from Columbia. So we were all very tight, and we were sharing a practice room in a condemned church. That's called the church. It's kind of notorious. We were all best friends. So they call me, and I happen to be on sort of Christmas break or close enough, and they go, Robo's in Columbia. We are playing the Mud Club in New York tonight. You need to come here and play. And I'm like, well, what about practice? No, you need to play. We bought you a ticket. Go to the airport. I'm 18. I'm in high school. I have never even flown before. So I asked my dad, Dad, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, well, it's okay with me, I guess. 
So I hung up the phone and went to the airport and played the Mud Club that night unrehearsed and then I finished the whole rest of the damaged tour the album they were touring on at the time was damaged I finished the tour and Robo it took him a long time to get back when he did come back I think the guys were kind of fed up with his unattentiveness to this visa issue if I were them I would have kind of helped him solve it maybe he didn't know how because Robo's for sure the biggest influence on my drumming. I love Robo, he's a very dear friend of mine. The idea that I was replacing him was unfathomable and I didn't want it to happen. I only like Black Flag with Robo. That includes everything that I've ever played on. I only like the stuff that Robo played on. But I did use it as an opportunity and I learned a lot. Those guys are either a little older than me or a lot older than me, depending on which one you're talking about. My father was very old. He was a grandpa age to me. I was born when my father was 50. So these older Black Flag guys, Greg and Chuck, they seemed more like father figures to me than my father did. So I learned an awful lot from them, not necessarily about band stuff, but about everything. It gave me the resources and the confidence I needed to go and do my own thing when my tenure there had seemed to have run its course. Did you have the intent at the time to try and exist in Descendants and Black Flag concurrently? I did it a little bit. I remember my last semester in college, I was taking 19 units and in Black Flag and in Descendants at the time. And it's funny, I just got my transcripts because I'm thinking about going back and getting some of my degrees that I abandoned. And I look at my grades and they were low. My background was if I got a C, my dad would lock my drums in the closet and there was no more drumming until the next quarter. A C wasn't allowed. And I look at my semester of college when I was in Descendants and Black Flag at the same time, and there's two Cs on there. I was like, oh, that would have never happened if I wasn't distracted. Ultimately, Descendants kind of got put on the back burner a little bit, but it kind of made sense because Milo was in San Diego too, so he went to college, as the album says. And so he kind of had maybe one pinky toe still in the Descendants, not even a whole foot. We would do shows every once in a while, but it kind of got backburnered a little bit for a couple of years until I left Black Flag. With Black Flag, you were partnered with some pretty strong musical personalities, with Greg Ginn and Henry Rollins at whatever point, legendary in their own way. Were you invested at that point of your life in the politics of punk, if you will, the anti-authoritarian and nonconformist messages that Rollins espoused? Yeah, we wanted to make our own way through the world and didn't see a lot of need in a lot of rules or laws or authority. It's, I mean, I still don't. I've always felt this since I was like three or whatever, but... The golden rule is how you live, and if everyone did it, we wouldn't have all the problems we have. You know, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. If everybody did that, we wouldn't need such a tremendous amount of legislation, regulation, arbitration, enforcement, all this stuff. We wouldn't need it if people just kept their little part of the yard clean. It would be great. member, Greg Ginn, the guitarist, he was making some interesting post-hardcore records while you were in the band. I'm thinking about My War, experimenting with free jazz influences, some slower tempos. In retrospect, were you a sponge for that stuff? Joe Biza from the band Saccharin Trust, which was another SST band, he really got us into Ornette Coleman and some of the other things surrounding that, whether it be Eric Dolphy or even Charlie Parker. So yeah, I was like, wow, listen to what Ornette Coleman's doing. There's not a time signature. There's not a chord progression. They're just kind of feeling their way through it. They're just human beings in a room kind of cooperating with each other. What a thing. And then also the Grateful Dead would do that too. When they would do their jams, there wasn't always a chord progression. Most bands that call themselves jam bands, they aren't really jamming because there's a blues chord progression underneath it. To me, that's just as safe as playing a song. Blues chord progression, and they're playing these solos that fit into that scale. That's not risky, really, but what Ornette Coleman was doing was risky, or Albert Ayler, or Eric Dolphy, or any of these guys. And we were just like, wow, what if we could get a little, just a little crumb of that into our band? It would be so cool. So we tried, and I think 
our attempts were, it's great that we tried to do it. I don't know that we were really successful. I mean, I don't listen to those albums very much in retrospect, but the fact that we tried to do it, we as artists, it's our duty, our function to aspire to more than what we have inherited. And so, yeah, we were trying to get to something that we hadn't heard other bands do. Whether we succeeded or not, I don't know if that's the point. The point is we went there. Yeah. I think the bands that were influenced by those records did a better job, probably. I call it the cleanup act. They come behind and do it right, do it better. Yeah, but boy, people would get mad at us when we play and spit all over us, and they'd cut up Henry's legs when he's trying to sing and burn cigarettes on him and throw chairs at us and stuff. It was a big old mess, man. It was, (laughs) yeah. You were starting to get credits at this point as a producer, an engineer, a mixer. Were you learning the studio trade at this point, on the job, so to speak? During Black Flag, I was only barely learning the engineering side of it. The production side of it, that started when I was... I remember I bought this album called Rarities by the Beatles. This was the moment I knew that I don't listen to music, I study it. The Love Me Do version that's on that Rarities album... For so long, I would listen and I go, that doesn't sound right. That's not right. And when I got a little older, I realized, okay, the bass guitar, it is seriously almost a full half step sharp from the rest of the band. And so, you know, when something's that out of tune, it makes your fillings and your teeth hurt, right? You know, like, oh, oh quit it. Well, just tune it. Stop and tune it, will you? And I'm like, whoa. Wait, I'm criticizing the Beatles? No, that's not right. But at the same time, it's true. And so I, I just started listening critically when I was real young, but I didn't do anything. My engineering debut was purely a, I was a weapon of opportunity. Our engineer during I Don't Want to Grow Up, in the middle of the album, he started showing up a little bit buzzed or drinking during the session, and he would get like loaded. And we're trying to get this work done, and we didn't have tons of studio time. It all had to be done quickly. So he got so loaded one time, that he passed out in the middle of recording. And I just kind of rolled him out of the way and put my chair up in there. And there you know, I'm an engineer, just like that. (laughs) So sadly, what I didn't know and I found out later, this engineer had received news in the middle of our recording that he had a terminal illness. And so he was trying to cope with that. So I look back on it and I think, well, I feel bad that I judged him for his actions, but at the same time, I had to get the record done, so yeah. Descendants eventually added Carl Alvarez on bass and Stephen Egerton to play guitar, and you reconvened to record the album, All, in the mid-'80s. And All was also a theme, a concept. The origin of All is the best. (laughs) My boat, Orca, is 16 feet long. We would go commercial fishing in the middle of the night with the bonus cup, with the speed, sometimes with cocaine or what they called crank back then. And one of the things we would fish for is mackerel. And we used a braille net, like a scoop net with about a 30-inch hoop. And we'd chum, one guy'd chum, one guy'd scoop them up. And we had the lights out to draw them up to the light. And at a certain point, we had over a ton of mackerel in a 16-foot boat, a dinghy. Plus we were 40 miles offshore. Everything about this was absurd. So I'm like, Pat, we got to stop. We have to go in now because the boat's going to sink. If there's a rough sea, wave comes over, you're sinking. You're out in the middle of the ocean. So I'm like, we got to go in. The boat's full. And he goes, no, all. And he kept going. So he (laughs) said the word. It wasn't like something we conjured. He was scooping and I was chumming. He goes, no, all. Where was the fish going to go? I don't know. And then I was like, yeah, all. That's a great thing because it's the utmost possible, the total extent, when nothing else remains. So it was great. All, 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 all. And we'd go out there and we'd yell all while we were fishing. All. <laughs> so, so a couple years later then, Stefan joins the band and he writes that thing, that that really nasty chord thing. And he goes, you have to write lyrics for it. And I'm like, I do? And I thought about, well, my mom studied every religion, Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Rastafari, everything. And I kind of had this broad overlook of religions from her. And I thought, well, okay, 
I'll make my own 10 commandments and it'll be the religion of all. And so that's what the ologistics are. Thou shalt not commit adulthood. Thou shalt covet thy neighbor's food. Thou shalt not take the van's name in vain. Thou shalt not commit laundry. You know, these were my <laughs> commandments because I thought, well, if there can be a million religions, why can't there be a million and one? So it was the concept of all, but it started when we were out there fishing, yeah. Thou shalt not commit hygiene. Thou shalt not have no idea. Oh. Thou shalt commit thyself to an institution. No. Oh. Thou shalt not take the van's name in vain. Thou shalt not allow anything to deter you in your quest for all. When Milo departed again, this time for career reasons instead of school, you added Dave Smalley from Dag Nasty, called the new band lineup, All. We did three All records before we moved from L.A. And when we moved to Missouri, Dave was not in the band by that point. You had cost of living move? What were the parameters? Oh, why did we move to Missouri? Yeah. We were living in a building about the size of a quarter of a 7-Eleven. No, a sixth of a 7-Eleven like a little bit bigger than a master bedroom. We were all living in it, <laughs> sleeping on the floor of our practice room with no shower, no hot water. And we lived that way for 11 years, 12 years in some way or another. But we were paying a huge amount of rent for that in LA. So we were living like sardines and paying rent. At that point, the band was only worth a guarantee of like $300 per night. How far does that go with gas and van repairs and food? We had no money. And so my dad goes, hey, why don't you move into that house that I own in Brookfield? It's where my dad was born, Brookfield, Missouri. He owned a house out there. It was all paid for and everything. And he goes, just pay me a little bit of rent. So we had this big, <laughs> huge four-bedroom house with a big basement and a big garage for 250 bucks a month. So each of our rent was whatever, $62.50. That's how much each of our rent cost. Plus our crew was living there too. We set up a couple little makeshift living spaces too. So we were living out there basically with zero cost of living. And we had our own bedrooms. I had never had a bedroom in my life. I remember the first time I shut that door and laid on my bed, I was like, wow, this is what they're all talking about. This is great. <laughs> So there we were for four years, but in that four years, a lot happened. The first was the Nirvana Pearl Jam revolution on the radio. You know, that's not a too far distant cousin from punk rock. It's just a little different. All of a sudden, that's popular. That's mainstream. And then long behind that, you had the mall punk thing that got popular, too. You had your Green Days and your Offsprings and all that. So then it was like, oh, wow. The world's finally cool with us. And so labels started coming at us. And one label gave us just a ridiculous amount of money. Interscope Records, I mean, life-changing money. So we go, okay, we don't have to live in Brookfield, Missouri anymore because there's nothing to do here. There's 3,000 people and cow tipping is the hobby. There's nothing there. Not even a McDonald's, just an Arby's, you know, but, but so we realized that the tenure in Brookfield had served its purpose. So we moved to Fort Collins and with that Interscope money, we built what is now known as the Blasting Room. Picking Fort Collins, why? Sort of random. We talked about LA, right? And then we talked about Brookfield, Missouri. So, you know, Goldilocks, right? Well, this porridge is too hot. Oh, but this porridge here is too cold. So we were trying to think, well, what big towns, small cities, where the porridge is just right? And we talked about Austin, Texas, Eugene, Oregon, Albuquerque, Athens, Georgia. But we had had a lot of fun in Fort Collins. We had come through on tour and had a lot of fun. We had some good friends here. We had a little bit of a support system here. And so there we were. We had been here like two weeks. We rented a building where we were all living again. No more bedrooms. We were all <laughs> sleeping on the floor of our practice room. But in that building is where we built the blasting room. I can't promise you a million bucks, but I can promise that I'll be good to you. Everybody. 
So after recording for over a decade for independent labels, all was signed to Interscope Records, and it was that great major label feeding frenzy you're describing in the wake of grunge. They were signing any band with loud guitars and some angst. Most bands got screwed. They were signed for an album, then they were dropped when they didn't sell enough and wound up owing the label an arm and a leg. You were astute enough to negotiate, and when all was dropped after one, they actually had to pay you to leave. Our okay. deal was for three firm records, and it's pay or play, meaning if they don't want to do another record with us, they still have to give us the full recording fund for the second one and the third one. So that deal there is how we bought our SSL console, because the SSL console wasn't part of the original blasting room. And at that point, to get that all in there was close to a half million dollars. So we bought that essentially with the money that Interscope gave us to go away. And so it was just <laughs> great the way it all worked out. And then we turned right around and, of course, went to Epitaph with our next record. Fantastic. Epitaph's like, yeah, we'd love to have you. Are you kidding me? Epitaph is a great label, oh, yeah. very organized. I'm a So you built the blasting room one step at a time, a truck, a mixing board, then the Interscope money let you buy a 48-track mixing board. Were your initial goals short-term or long-term? Did you want just a place to record your music, or were you looking to establish a permanent institution? Blasting room, I think Stefan had way more insight on all of this than I did. It was his idea to build a studio, and I went, oh, yeah, seems good. It was his idea to call it the blasting room. We were just building it for us. So we'd have a place to practice and record and not have to pay studios anymore. But I think in Stefan's mind, he was already thinking, no, this will become its own business. I guess I was thinking, well, why would somebody drive to Fort Collins to record with us? We're not that good. As soon as we got the wiring in there and got the gear in there, before we even had paint on the walls, bands started calling me. Hey, we hear you built a studio. I'm like, well, not quite, but yeah, we want to come record. And I'm like, well, okay, yeah. If you build it, they will come. It really was that. We have never been not booked solidly since 1994. Never. So it's always been full since before we even put paint on the walls. It really became something that I was too obtuse to see or just too narrow viewed. I was just only thinking about the band. And it very quickly took on a life of its own. At what point did owned and operated recordings come into play? Yeah, I thought I could not fail. So we started a little T-shirt printing company, and we started owned and operated, a little record label in town. So that was 97, maybe? We released a lot of local bands in Fort Collins. We lost a ton, a ton of money, but that's really not what killed the label. The downloading was tough because we started it at the perfect time when downloading was just starting to take off Napster thing, whatever all that is. But what happened is me, we run as a democracy, but maybe I'm the guy leading the charge. I had a few things happen. First thing is my father became ill and I had to move him into my house and take care of him until he passed away. And it was a full-time job because he had Parkinson's and dementia. So I had to put everything on the back burner for a year. And then right at that same time, I had children. So I had babies and I wanted to be there for the babies. And then about the time the babies were not babies anymore and they were like off in their way to school, I got a huge brain tumor. So the label never got a chance to really get any momentum. So I called up every band and I go, I want to send you all your records and CDs, and I want you to do whatever you want with them. And I wish you luck. I hope you do something good with them. But I realize I've failed as a label, 
and I don't want that to cause you to fail anymore. So we just gave all the bands back all their records for them to do what they want with it. And that's the story of Own and Operated. What a gift for a lot of Fort Collins-based bands. Wretch Like Me, Someday I, Tanger, Bill the Welder. You worked with some big boys over the years. Rise Against, the Chicago-based band. It kills me not to know this, but I've all but just forgotten what the color of her eyes were. And her scars are how she got them. Has the telling signs of age rain down. A single tear is dropping through the valleys of an aging face that this world has forgotten. NoFX recorded Coaster and a whole bunch of albums with you guys. We've been doing their records since 2004. NoFX's records, yeah. You're very generous giving credit to your team. No, no, um, no, no. I'm the stupidest guy in the building. It's not what you think. I'm not being humble. It's no, those guys are killing. That. Collectively, your skills are incredibly impressive. I uh, keep hiring I, more and more geniuses. Okay. I have Jonathan. Okay. We have four studios now in that building. We started with Studio A, and then five, six years later, we built Studio B. And then we didn't build any for a long time, but once Jonathan showed up, he single-handedly built us two new studios, so now we have four. It's great. Our mastering lab is just so righteous. It's great. We have great studios now. Well, let's talk about it as your fingers in the pie. Engineer, mixer, graphic designer, drummer when needed, and producer. Production is a term that the casual music fan doesn't grasp entirely because it can be so many things. A producer can be a member of the band getting his hands in songwriting and arranging, or a producer can be strictly an engineer helping a band craft a distinctive sound. Can you define your ethos as a producer? So first I have to quote Steve Albini. He has the greatest description of a producer. He says, the only prerequisite or qualification that someone needs to become a producer is simply the audacity to call oneself a producer. <laughs> it's not possible to put that better than that. Think how few That's jobs good. there are for which that is the case. It's crazy. So, yeah, producer, they're just hats, right? Producer, engineer, arranger, musician, editor. They're just hats. You put a different hat on. So I do as much or as little on a project that seems to be required of me. So if it's like, whoa, this band has really horrible songs, I gotta try to get them to write better songs. Some of their songs don't have a bridge or they don't have an intro or I need to get them in different keys because they're not in the right range for the singer. So sometimes it's picking up an acoustic guitar or plunking away on a piano and figuring out, okay, on a songwriting level, I mean, I don't really write songs for bands. Whatever song ideas I have, they're mine, and I want them to be in my band, my thing. So there's that level of it where you really have to get into it. There's another level of some bands just show up, and they've sent me demos, and their demos are stellar. All the songs are, in my opinion, perfectly arranged, and it's just like, great. Let's get some mics up and go. I don't have to do anything on that level. Then it's just capturing really good performances that's a broad spectrum of what I might do in a day. I've never grasped the dynamics of owning and operating a recording studio. You've got to keep up on the latest gear and technology to be competitive. Or hire someone to do so. You've got to shell out for maintenance on existing equipment. Or have someone that can repair everything in the building. <laughs> but you're also in a world in recent years where a kid can make a record in his mom's bedroom using Pro Tools and plugins. You've kept it going. That's a great accomplishment. They're paying for the studio, but they're also paying for the buttload of life experience in making records that we have. You can't buy that. You can rent it, though. We have bands that we've been recording them for 27 years. Like Kemuri from Japan. It's a ska band, horns and stuff. There's 10 of them, and they come over here from Tokyo every two years, and they've been doing it since 1996. And how much is that on flights? What? How much? I don't know. <laughs> sleep in our very humble little band accommodation thing with several beds 
and they keep coming and keep coming and keep coming. They're like our best friends, their family. Rise Against, they've been coming since 2002. Good riddance, Wilhelm scream, they just won't go anywhere else. It's extremely flattering, and I guess it speaks to just how hard we try, probably. I don't know that any of us have any geniuses in our lineage. I feel like whatever I've managed to scrape together for myself as a kind of half-assed punk rock career, it's been a result of the sweat of my brow, not because, you know, oh, I come from a background of music. I know my dad was a security guard. I don't come from that. Yeah, we work hard and try to keep the lights on, right? Descendants and all have continued recording over the years, coexisting, depending on schedules. <laughs> well, it all started because Carl and Stefan and I, we were just getting started as the three of us. Carl and Stefan had only been in the band a year when Milo wanted to go back and do his post-grad work where you get your PhD and all that. So we wanted to keep going. We were just getting fired up. So yeah, we kept all going. It's kind of like the band's always going. And then sometimes Milo reinserts himself into it and then goes away and it doesn't really affect us. But now he's been in it very much full time for many, many years. And so the blunt physical reality of that is that yeah, we've been doing way more Descendants work than all work because I could do 10 Descendants gigs and pay my rent for a year, whereas I'd have to do 100 all gigs to do that. I'm 58. All just played Las Vegas two weeks ago. It was great. We had so much fun. But I can't quite support myself on it. Descendants put out Ninth and Walnut earlier this year. It's our very, very first batch of songs. We didn't really know how to play when we started the band. We learned how to play in the Descendants. The Ninth and Walnut songs, these 15 songs, were our very first songs that we ever learned. But by the time we had gotten good enough at playing and good enough at being a band and knowing how to be a band, knowing how to record, or even knowing, well, what do we sound like? Who are we? By the time that happened, we had gotten sick of all those songs and we had written new ones, which, you know, of course, the new ones are much better than the old ones, right? And so all of those 15, they kind of got backburnered. From the original batch, there's two of them that made it on Milo Goes to College. One is Parents and one is Statue of Liberty. Those are actually from the original batch, but all the other ones kind of went away. But then when we were doing Everything Sucks... In 1996, Tony and Frank actually each played on a couple songs. So while the three of us were together, Tony's like, hey, why didn't we ever record all our first songs? And I'm like, I don't know, because they suck. But we listened to them, and it's like, no, they don't suck. They're kind of better than a lot of our newer ones are. They're good. <laughs> Let's record them. So it took us a few years, even after that, to get together and actually record them. And then it took forever for Milo to find time to do the vocals. There we have it. So Ninth and Walnut, it's actually what would have been our first album if we had not been little kids. Flatulation punctuates still that air. And I thank God you're here. I clean. Enjoy. Smell my thumb. Enjoy. You've written songs about everything from family to farts. Any fan is intrigued by One More Day. <laughs> this is about the death of your father, which you alluded to, and taking care of him in his last years. Did you ever get his approval for what you've accomplished musically? It came from him only when it came from the world. So he called my music noise, and I was never going to do it. I'm not good. My band isn't good. Our songs aren't good. But when Robert Hilburn of the L.A. Times, possibly one of the most famous music critics of all time, I would say, when he gave Milo Goes to College a five-star review or whatever, all of a sudden, my band was okay with my dad. All of a sudden, I was a musician or when Black Flag sold out the Santa Monica Civic, 3,000 people, all of a sudden, 
we were legitimate. He wasn't able to judge it on musical terms. He could only judge it on whether it seemed viable to those who listened to it or whether it seemed like I might be able to make money at it, those kinds of things. But this is a man who lived through the depression and a man whose ex-wife bankrupted him and he had to work two full-time jobs for most of his life while I was growing up. So he was more concerned that I had a job than whether or not I was expressing myself creatively or musically. He just wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to be poor like he was. Spent the last years in denial of my grief because you hated me. Anyone could see. I'll always wonder what I meant to you. There have been the health issues that you alluded to. I just sent my son a screenshot because I was checking in for an MRI, and it lists all my conditions. Each one gets its own square. So it looks like Hollywood squares. I feel like there's a domino effect of health problems that probably all were caused by the brain tumor. I had a huge brain tumor in my head the size of a large orange or small grapefruit. I have a great scar. It's so awesome. That's like my pride. I wear it proudly because, you know, it could have gone the other way. It could have been cancerous. So I had a huge brain tumor, which caused all kinds of problems. The first of which is it took me from a big boned male, 220 pounds to 400 pounds. I did it in 18 months. I got up to 400 pounds. Crazy. So there was the gout, the sleep apnea, the diabetes, the peripheral neuropathy nerve damage to my feet, which I still have, and to my fingers, which I still have, the pulmonary embolism, the congestive heart failure, and all of that was because of the lethargy. The brain tumor was pressing on both sides of my nerve and the frontal lobe. So it was just wiping me out. I would just sit on the couch. I was a vegetable for a year. I went in the hospital originally because a blood clot from my leg, again, from just sitting, being 400 pounds. If my daughter had a birthday cake, I would eat the whole cake. Horrible. But the blood clot from my leg came up and slammed through my heart. Normally, you die. That's it. But my heart pushed it through. They say, probably because I've been drumming for so many years, my heart's very strong, apparently. So it pushed it through into my lungs, but then I couldn't breathe at all. So I had to treat that pulmonary embolism. And then it wasn't for months and months later that somehow my ophthalmologist was looking at my eyes because I went blind. And he was looking at my eyes and he goes, you need to go get an MRI. So it was actually the eye doctor that found the brain tumor. So I went across the street. So once they got that out of there, my life started to go back to normal. Great. I'm the miracle man. You know, Milo wrote that song for me, The Comeback Kid. Then a year and a half later, some of that tumor regrew, and I had to have another craniotomy, this time through my nose. And I had to have a septoplasty first to route out the access. So the ENT surgeon and the brain surgeon, they tagged out on me. You know, 18 hours of fun, yeah. And then they rebuilt my skull up there from my thigh. They put my thigh in my nose. <laughs> so, so that made the tumor cool. So, okay, I'm good, I'm good. So then like a year later, I threw another blood clot because they didn't put me on permanent blood thinners. And I was back in the hospital. The other one had partially dissolved, but then this new one made it where I really couldn't breathe. I had to go to UC San Diego, which is where Milo went to college. I had to go to the university hospital at UC San Diego where there's this one man that can do this one thing that he invented. It's called a pulmonary thromboendarterectomy. And what they do is it's an open lung surgery, okay? But you can't open lung surgery if there's any heart activity or blood flow. So they crack your sternum open and he gets you on life support and then they cool you down for like two hours and they cool you down so far, Walt Disney style, all the way down and then they take you off life support. You are flatline dead when he does the surgery to remove the pulmonary embolism, the blood clot and blood clot scar tissue. And then the quick put you back together and start heating you back up and hope there wasn't any brain damage during that time. But 
it gets better. He goes, well, you know, while I'm in there, I noticed you need a triple bypass too. So we'll just go ahead and do that at the same time. And I'm like, well, yeah, okay, great. So I had a triple bypass at the same time as the pulmonary endarterectomy, which put the mortality at one in 17. Don't make it off the table. But it all worked out great. And now I can breathe really well and I can exercise and go to the gym and play the drums like heck. Then 2017, another little bit of that brain tumor grew back, but this time it was very tiny, the size of a lima bean or a large green pea. But it was right up against my optic nerve, lost most of my vision in the left eye. It was too small to do surgery on it, so I had to do radiation on it. So I did five days a week radiation for like a couple months. That really takes the wind out of your sail, so I kind of useless for eight months. But then I got pretty much most of my vision back in my left eye, or it's back to how it was when the big brain tumor ruined it the first time, which is like, eh, that's kind of where we're at now. I just had an MRI two days ago, and there's nothing happening now. So right now, I have no health issues, except I blew my knee out at kind of a crossfit type place, like a group exercise type thing where the young fit lady yells at you and tells you to try harder. <laughs> yeah, so that, I blew my knee out on that, but this, you know, whatever. I feel very fortunate, very lucky, and it's really, if you can step outside yourself when you're in those situations, look at it, and it's like, wow, take a look at what these doctors can do nowadays. It's absolutely unbelievable what they can do now, where they kill you and then operate <laughs> on your lung and stuff. It's crazy to think about. God bless you, man. You're a tough old bird. You're feeling good these days? Do you still I, feel like a punker? I feel like the same amount punker as I always did because I have my beliefs. I have my opinions. I have my way of doing things. And punk rock's always been about that to me. The first punk show I went to, I looked around and it's like, oh, right. These are all the people that sort of don't quite fit in anywhere else. They're not on the football team. They're not going to be an investment banker. These are my people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bill, what's your favorite musician's joke? What do you call a dude who hangs out with a bunch of musicians? Oh, what? <laughs> a drummer. <laughs> Very self-effacing. Right. <laughs> Thank you, sir. The Colorado Music Experience is a nonprofit educational and cultural organization relying on financial support for music enthusiasts to fund its initiatives. To learn more, please visit colomusic.org, C-O-L-O music.org. Terrapin Care Station is a Boulder-based, vertically integrated, consumer-focused cultivator, processor, and provider of high-quality medical and recreational cannabis products. Terrapin loves music and is proud to partner with Colorado Music Experience to educate the public on everything great about our state's music history. It adds significant cultural value across Colorado, solidifying our state's position as a leader. Follow Terrapin on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit terrapincarestation.com.